Hello and welcome to the Faces of Food podcast. I'm Corby Kummer and we're recording live from Eat Stockholm Food Forum 2019. I'm here with Howard Yana Shapiro, amazing scientist and entrepreneur from the United States and my good friend. Howard Yana is the Chief Agricultural Officer at Mars and has been involved with sustainable agriculture and agroforestry systems plant breeding, molecular biology, and genetics for over 50 years. I'm just going to read two more sentences of this because I love his biography. It goes on forever. He's worked with indigenous communities, NGOs, governmental agencies, and the private sector around the world. His academic career spanned 15 years. He's senior fellow at UC Davis, College of Agriculture and Environmental Sciences, a former Fulbright Scholar, Ford Foundation fellow, and in 2007 was made a Distinguished Fellow of the World Agroforestry Center and co-wrote the IAASTD chapter on biotechnology and biodiversity, and it just goes on from there. Howard, what did you talk about this morning at Eat Forum? Well, today I wanted to talk about uh, what I would call transitions that are necessary to change a conversation. When we talk about food, there's always a sort of general notion that everyone needs plenty of food. And so what I spoke about this morning was a new definition for what food is. It must be nutritious and it must be safe because 1.5 quadrillion kilocalories of food are lost every year. That's 45 trillion gallons of water. And when you realize that loss is caused both by climate change and pest and disease and post-harvest losses and Oftentimes, people end up eating these crops that are covered with aflatoxin, mycotoxins, fumonisins, ochratoxins, what have you, because they have nothing else to eat. And the impact of that is not just a simple number, 4.5 billion people suffer from it. It has more to do with long-term impacts, liver cancer, stunting. 14 to 15% of GDPs of some of these countries are lost by these causes. And it's not a pretty picture. And the vegetables are not beautiful like they came out of a picture book. These are the reality. So how do we fix that? And what are the criteria that we need to go through to do it? And what are the specific points that a meeting like this and industry have to get together on? I would say the first one is thinking through the whole notion of what food is, so nutrition. The second thing would be resilience. How do we grow crops that are resilient? Why resilience? Because the word resilience means the ability to respond quickly to a problem. And since the speed of change is faster than our ability to respond most often, if you aren't resilient, it will not work. The third sort of thought has to do with degraded land, because we don't have any more land to work with. And even if we intensify production, it's still not enough to abandon all this land that has been degraded over periods of time. Not intentionally, no one degrades land, but just the way agriculture has been run. The fourth one, and I think it's, it's equally important, is to understand what productivity really means. So is the productivity measured on nutrition? Is it on yield? Is it on economic, ecological, environmental benefits? So we have to really work that area through. And then the last area is social inclusion. So when we start to think about food systems and the designing of food systems, all these pieces have to be part of it. But how does any of that translate into economic gain that would convince companies to change their behavior? I think all of it does. In fact, if we can have a supply chain 
that allows us to know, first of all, who the beginning of our supply chain is, whether it's cooperatives. Maybe you can get down to cooperatives. It's very difficult to individual farmers. And then if we understand the social cohesion of those communities built on the fact that they have the ability to sell something in a semi-vertical supply chain, and then every player in the line is acting correctly. Because right now, you might have two of the three actors working right and one who doesn't. And so the system doesn't work. And best intentions don't count. You know, in a way that sounds, and correct me if I'm misinterpreting, top down. You are saying as a buyer, I am going to insist on correct behavior every step up the food chain and the supply chain as it comes to me. And I have the resources to enforce this, to change my orders if uh, and who I buy from if I don't believe that they're behaving properly. Um, is that something that companies are and should be doing? And then how does somebody who's in the cooperative try to change things? So I would suggest to you it actually starts at the bottom. That they say we have made these changes. We are environmental. We are ecological. We are structurally social. We understand those things that you are being forced to reckon with. So we're, we're going to deliver that to you because we have no options. Because we know the pressures that are on our supply chain, whether you want to talk about climate or pests and diseases. Just think for a second the damage that the African armyworm has done. This thing can fly 60 kilometers a night, go to a new field where you think you were protected. It's been found in China. It's devastating crops. It has no discrimination against maize or rice or teff, or fonio, it eats everything. Imagine what it's going to do to China. So a farmer who has the ability to work and try to recreate an ecosystem or repair the tear in the ecology so that that doesn't happen deserves, to, how would you say, a payment for that that is different than just we'll pay you $1 a pound. So they begin to make the demands that they know that the consumer wants. They structure it. The people who broker the materials from the farmers to the manufacturers, they now know what the story is and how they have to act. So what is the demand from consumers that you're talking about? Well, I think consumers are going to want to know where everything comes from because I, I really do believe there's great distrust of large corporations by most consumers and they want transparency. I don't know that they know what that really means or understand what the complexities are. They say, just do blockchain. And somehow the word blockchain means the metaphor for everything that's going to work. So it's a part of the system. But we're really talking about, in my world, systems biology, economic systems biology, whatever number of words you want to you know, put together. But at the end of the day, the raw material users must have a relationship somehow with the maker of the raw materials, and they must all accept the roles they have to play to have a resilient system. So do you think that if people listen to you and people come to the Eat Forum and they think, I want to demand a different way of producing my food, how do they get companies to listen? How do they get um, people in the cooperatives to change their agricultural practices? But it's not even so much as change it, it's uh -huh. to modernize it. Uh -huh. um, 
because they haven't had access to extension services or best planting material. And then you're also, beneath all this, you've got to fix the food system that supports the people who grow what you want, whether you need some palm oil or you need some cacao or whatever commodity it is, that group has to be healthy at the bottom of the pyramid as well. So it's not enough just to, to say eat more maize or eat more fonio. You need to eat more nutrition. So you have to work on that aspect too. I mean, you can't disconnect any part of the system. You could sit in some office somewhere and say, I'm going to call up XYZ export company and tell them I want 10 pounds of this. That might work today, it might work tomorrow, but it won't work the next day. So you're thinking in terms of the economic health and, and physical health of the people growing the food. Without question. And um, trying to make sure that there's inclusion and economic justice and fairness for all the people who are growing the food, as well as paying attention to the environment and such. This sounds really utopian. But it's not utopian because companies are already starting to set up long-term contracts, 10 years. Because they know that they need to work with those people. They know that they need to help them get the best planting material. Whether it's a tree nut or it's an annual crop that's exported, they know that the system is not working the way it's supposed to. And it's worked for a very long time. Everyone's been, I wouldn't say happy, but it, it goes along sort of anonymously. Anonymity doesn't exist anymore. It's very hard to be anonymous in the age that we live in. You can take a picture of something next day, a million people have seen it without context. So social media sort of trumps many other things that might be more truthful, whether it's science or sociology or ecology, whatever. Aberrant thought process can really become the norm. So I can imagine that coming out of Eat Forum, we would say we need to be thinking in terms of what will be better for the environment? What will help long-term climate change considerations in the way we change our diet, more plant-based thinking of what the plants are? And I can imagine companies saying in their contractual behavior, our customers are really concerned about um, clean label or whatever the jargon you want to use is, very few ingredients. They're even going to think in terms of, is this country of origin someplace they want to support or someplace where the rainforest is being raped? I can imagine that level of consumer thinking and young idealism reaching companies. How do you buy in terms of social justice for the farmers? Well, so there's a couple of things that have to be put in place. It's understandable why people would cut down the forest to have semi-richer land to grow crops for a certain period of time for more robustness. But what if there was a setup and you sold bonds, not a green bond, but a bond on the open market that basically said, we're going to support your practices and improve them, and we're going to protect this really critical habitat and we've got the off-takers for your effort guaranteed for 10 years. That's about the length of the bond anyway. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, you have a superior system for understanding why to protect something, the education, the working process of how you're going to go about it. Those sorts of things are starting to happen. And the scale, different from $5 million intervention here or a $2 million intervention there or $500,000 in a grant, 
in the case of the first tropical landscape finance facility, is $1 billion for Sumatra on rubber. And we're starting to see it's working. They become the guardians, if you will, Mm -hmm. of this forest plot because what they're doing doesn't have to encroach anymore. They become the protectors because the off-takers are willing to pay slightly more a fair price for the material that's coming off those fields. And remind me why, because that's always the big stepping stone. We know that just a little more in a price could help so much in terms of social justice and and climate justice. What's the lever to make a company which is always resistant to paying a little more do that? Probably a couple reasons. One is shareholders standing up and saying, we want you to do this. In the, in the sense of privately held companies, it's having a long view because companies that have been in business 20, 40, 50, 100 years, and there are a number of those, they want to be in business another 100 years. You know, it's, it's generational, if you will. So there's that whole thinking. And everyone knows we've reached a point where we, there has to be fair payment. You want to be paid fairly at, at work. You want to get a reasonable, uh, bill at the restaurant. Everyone else wants to have the same thing. We're, we're not talking about abstract existential stuff. Hans Rosling, the, the great commenter about many of these topics and other people too, you know, that have talked about the economics of these complicated systems knows that everybody wants to be improved. Nobody wants to be static and cut down more rainforest. They do it because there's pressure from the public to have more of a certain thing without understanding the implication. So what if we say halt? And someone says, well, we have a terrible disease. And if we say halt, it'll wipe us out. And we're expected to produce this much more. All right, let's fix the disease. What's the uncommon collaboration that'll take on the problem? And it won't be just this group by itself. It won't be the CGI by itself. It'll be businesses, academic institutions, public businesses. Everyone has to get together. Is this the idea that every crisis is an opportunity? Well, it's more than an opportunity. It's a reality. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this in projects like the African Orphan Crops Consortium. If you were to go to the webpage and there's a series of them from UC Davis and Mars and the World Agroforestry Center. If you would think about that for a minute and look at just the consortium, uncommon consortium of who's gotten together to solve a problem of chronic hunger and malnutrition in Africa by improving 101 food crops. And you realize these people never worked together before. But the rationale for working together makes sense. And then there's partners beneath that who have very specific things they bring to the project. Tropical landscape finance facilities, uncommon collaborations, rethinking systems biology in ways we never thought about it before, understanding why the fabric of diversity is important and what it does when you rip that thing apart. Everyone's going to get to know this. I can't help thinking that it's the rip these things apart that will move change. And you mentioned, for example, the army worm, and when you said, think for a second about the destruction is causing, uh, no matter how long I thought, I wouldn't be able to conjure it, because I didn't know until you told me. So what are some of the other crises that we should be worrying about and, and thinking about that are going to create change? Soil. Soil. You know, 
famously spoken by Will Rogers, they're making more people every day, but they're not making any more dirt. So whatever soil we have, we have to revise. We have to rejuvenate. Whatever the term you want to use is, we have to get to a point where it becomes highly productive again, whether it's agricultural methodologies or inoculations. There's brilliant companies coming up around the world that believe that their particular soup that you can put on the soil or on the plant will increase yields and build tilth in the soil and will restore the microbiome. I want all of that to work. You know, the investments community must, they need to make hundreds of bets, like DARPA makes hundreds of bets with very few wins, but the wins become something that becomes a change agent. But you know, when you say DARPA, which is a fascinating, um, gosh, defense, I can't even remember what it stands for. Advanced Research Program of the Army. But of course, you know. Um, but that is an example of when the government would make big bets in big blue sky basic research. Companies would then take those insights and knowledge uh, apply them commercially, and it would result in tiny things like the internet and GPS that would change our lives. And and now it's reviled as public-private partnerships, but those are great things. Are you seeing it happening anymore in the United States? And, and since you do so much work in Africa and Asia, where are you seeing the exciting public-private partnerships? So there's a, an agency called ARPA-E, which is sort of a futuristic, mechanistic view of things. What are the machines? What are the devices? And what they're coming up with, being able to analyze root structures, rethinking the root structures of plants. Mm -hmm. So that's happening. And interestingly enough, it's inside the institution of ARPA-E. It's also outside at major universities and think tanks. It's happening everywhere. Take BGI in Shenzhen, China, formerly known as the Beijing Genomic Institute, which you know I'm close to. they have, It's huge. When you show me pictures of it, I can't believe it's the airplane hangars. Yes, it's, it's huge, and there's 7,000 people working there now, and there's more people working almost on informatics than the whole United States in one place. So it's horsepower. It's intellectual horsepower that's getting things done. They have nine divisions. Some are for-profit. Some are not-for-profit. The most advanced sequencer in the world that can do 60 human genomes a day, was just unveiled. This is brilliant. But they also have uh, under construction a 1,500-bed cancer research hospital, which is not-for-profit. So this mixture of things from these institutions that people don't know about unless you're really intimately involved with them every day. And then there's all the social institutions which are going on, which in the past, I think, did disservice to the complication of change agenting. Lots of books were published about what's wrong, but then we're sort of shifting into a different mentality, which is about the resilience that we have to embed in all of our systems, whether it's automatic driving cars, auto driving cars, or solar panels, or whatever system you want to talk about. The bottom line for the people who are the most successful industrially is the resilience, the ability to respond quickly to the problem. So how do we transfer that everywhere through an agriculture, agroforestry, water, soil system? That's the challenge. That's what EAT is about. 
I'm going to ask you two questions because I think we're probably coming to the end of our time. And that is, one, you are so good at talking to corporations to tell them you have to have a long view. You have to be thinking of the future. And that's going to change your behavior now when you're thinking about the long term. So give us hints about how you whisper to major international corporations because you managed to do it. Then I'm going to end for something for consumers and poor schmoes like us. I I think the the trick really is, is I'm not insulting them as the first point because in the past it was, you know, you're, you're bad and I'm good. So there's no insulting. I mean, whether it comes with age that you don't want to scream at someone or you really want to engage them to make the structural fundamental changes so they do better. And, you know, I don't think anybody starts the morning saying, I woke up this morning, I'm going to do bad today. I mean, there's some people that probably do that. But most people wake up and say, you know, I'm going to make a positive contribution. So to change the conversation to a scale issue, Mm-hmm. That you can make a scale change. You know, everybody makes discoveries every day. Very few of them are translated and then scaled. So the, the conundrum is getting people to understand the translation, and maybe you can't scale it. I mean, I've made discoveries that I know I can't scale. So you get partners, and then they scale it, and then they take it out there, and they make it affordable and usable and beneficial to people. Corporations are starting to think that they can be that, that they can have many parts to their personality. They're not just schizophrenic, they're polyphrenic in a certain way. They have many parts to their personality as a corporation. And they're not exclusive and they're not in conflict with each other. And that's a a big part of the shift. Understanding how complex corporations are and trying to find the, the places within them that can work to make a difference. Certainly true. And um, it's, it, I don't think it's hard to have the conversation, especially if you're not, uh, how would you say, messianic about what you want to do. You know, this is, these are the facts. So how can we, um, as people who are here trying to make change, but not necessarily with access to corporations, find our way in either to companies or change behavior by what we go out and do in the world in our do-gooding nonprofit lives? So there's a couple things. One is everyone can vote with their pocketbook. That's a standard metaphor that's been around for a 100 years. You make decisions. People watch what you do. They understand what you're thinking and how you're going to act at the marketplace. So that's the first thing. The second thing is uh, invest. You know, invest in funds. And then become an activist in the fund. You can say something, and, and there's small funds, and then there's big funds, and then there's gigantic funds like sovereign funds. Somehow, everyone is listening to the same story and trying to do the right thing. Some have billions of dollars to invest, and some have hundreds of dollars to invest. They will both get us to the same place. But it's the speed that everyone is interested in right now. And one must understand completely, again, that change is happening faster than our response. So how do we shorten that to become proactive and so we can anticipate the change so no one will suffer? 
Howard Yana Shapiro knows how to make change and is, I would say, the most inspirational figure in my life. And I've said it on radio and I will say it again. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity and thanks for the kind compliments. 